So if you brought your Bible with you this morning, we will be in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And if you're watching with us online, you'll be able to see that on whatever device you are joining us on. Again, it's Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. So if you're a parent or wherever a child, um, you know that parents, good parents, uh, one of the main things good parents do above all else is protect their children. And that changes throughout the lifespan of a child. Uh, for an infant, it looks very different than it does for an adult. Uh, for an infant, it means attuning, uh, being attuned to their every need, right? Someone has to always have an eye uh, on the infant, even if it's in the middle of the night and you need a uh, a monitor to make sure everything's okay. Um, and uh, I, I know it, it changes the more kids you have, like the more amount of effort you put into that uh, or time you spend. Uh, it seems like by the time you get to three or four, you, you have more of an idea of, okay, they can handle some of these things themselves and I don't have to worry so much about every little detail. But we all know that infants need a ton of care. There is no more helpless being on the planet than a newborn human being. It's just the truth uh, of the way things are. Uh, and so every need uh, is fulfilled by a parent in some way. And so uh, protecting an infant means doing literally everything for her or him. And it begins to change as children grow older. Uh, you continue to offer the protection of, of providing sustenance, providing a roof under which they can live, uh, providing physical safety. Uh, but then you also need to start thinking about things like uh, making sure that they're learning about the world, making sure that they're developing their mind, uh, making sure that you send them to school where they can be challenged, uh, even before they go to school, there's often times when we as parents try to figure out ways we can help get them ready for school when that comes. And there's there's a socialization aspect of it as well. Um, whether you're in a public school or homeschool, private school, whatever, you're making sure that kids are around some other kids in which they can socialize and they can develop relationships and understand how other people work and what it's like to get along with other people and all of the things that we do when we try to socialize our children. And hopefully along the way, you're also thinking about their, their spiritual health as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Uh, hopefully that's one of the most or the most important thing uh, that's on your mind when you're thinking about protecting your child. Uh, you're hopefully reading some scripture to them, teaching them how to pray, uh, teaching them about God and understanding his salvation, uh, leading to that day when they can make their faith their own. Then, of course, as they get older, it looks different. I'm told uh, that it looks different for teenagers than it does for little kids, uh, that things change over the years. There's, you trade different problems for other ones, and uh, you, you protect in different ways, all the ways that you can, all the way into adulthood, right? Uh, even with adult kids, you're still thinking about your adult children. You're thinking about their well-being in the world, thinking about them when they begin to raise their own children and making sure that you're there for them to provide the wisdom that they need. Uh, there is a desire as a parent, as a good parent, to care for and to protect one's child, to make sure that they're raised in a healthy environment and in such a way that they can be a follower of Jesus and a productive member of society. We know from Scripture that God himself is the ultimate father and that he desires to protect his children, so much so that even though we don't deserve it, he sent himself in the flesh as his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sake. To be murdered and killed and, and deal with the death, the painful death of crucifixion, as well as the, the, the spiritual death of having all sin poured upon him. He did that out of his love and desire 
for us, even though we didn't earn it or deserve it, his desire to protect us from our own circumstances that were coming our direction, but instead decided to take that upon himself, to take that upon his son, Jesus. Because our God is very, it's very clear in scripture that God protects his children, um, that he does this throughout the entire story, offering us his salvation and offering us protection. We're going to see that in the story that we're reading this morning. Uh, about how God protects his children. God protects those who follow him and who believe in him as Savior. Uh, Even and especially when things around us are fallen. Things around us are chaotic or problematic where there's suffering. And while God will certainly allow us to deal with the fallenness that's in the world, um, sickness, illness, uh, you know, problems that are that happen at work, problems that happen in relationships, um, all sorts of problems that come from living in a fallen world. God will allow us to endure that. Even in the midst of enduring those kinds of problems, God still protects us as his children. And God will never allow us to undergo something that would remove us from his hands. So that's what I want to talk about this morning as we see in Revelation chapter 7. So before we dive in, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence here with us through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would remove distraction from our hearts and from our minds. God, that you would speak clearly through your holy word, through your perfect word, through the work of your spirit and through your word, God, that you would impart and implant your truth within us in such a way that you would do a work of transformation within us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin or Seal. First thing we need to answer is, what is this? Second word in the chapter is this. After this, John writes, I saw four angels standing at the four corners. What is this that he's talking about? Well, contextually, it's obviously pointing back to something before it. And most recently, we have what we talked about last week in chapter 6. Chapter 6 was the opening of the first six seals uh, that we see on the scroll in chapter 5. And the sixth and final seal uh, was one of global judgment. One in which every person on the earth, no matter how rich 
or poor, uh, no matter how powerful or powerless, uh, was in the same circumstance. Uh, that they were hiding in the hills and begging for the rocks to cover them because the wrath of God was coming. Speaking about the end of all things and God's wrath and judgment being poured out on the earth. And in verse 17, at the end of the chapter, it says this in chapter 6. For the great day of their wrath, they being the Lamb Jesus and God on the throne, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, at first glimpse, that looks like a rhetorical question. Well, no one can stand. No one can stand against this. We just talked about, and, and, and towards the, the verses leading up to that one, uh, about how all people, regardless of their social class, regardless of their power, no one will be able to stand against, with slave or free, no one will be able to stand on that day. So it seems like a rhetorical question, but maybe chapter 7 is actu- an actual answer to this question. Who will be able to stand on the day of judgment? What hope is there? When this judgment coming, one might ask that question a different way. Uh, in, Paul, in, in, in Romans 7, Paul, after reflecting over his own sinfulness, he asked the question, oh, sinful that I am, who will save me from this wretched flesh? Right in this question, kind of gets taken up, the answer to that question, taken up and answered in Romans 8, and perhaps there's the same kind of thing going on here. John is allowing this question to be asked. Who can stand against God's judgment? What hope is there with this judgment to come that will affect everyone on earth and there's no way to get away from it? What hope is there? So chapter 7 in Revelation might be an answer to that question. And so then we get into the vision itself. There are four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, of course, we understand the earth is is round. Uh, Science has told us that. Uh, And so we don't need to take that four corners of the earth too literally. Uh, But instead, what it means is basically angels having control over the entire globe, uh, having control over all the earth. And we see this, you know, leading up in the other scrolls about how, uh, you know, this judgment of God is coming. God is in control of everything. And so we have these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth about to unleash judgment. It says they're holding back the four winds. Now, wind throughout Scripture can be a sign of judgment. And so what we see is angels for a time being told to hold back the judgment, to stop in the middle of the story of judgment because something else needs to happen before we move forward. An angel rises from the east or from the rising of the sun to tell these other four angels, wait until God has sealed his servants on their forehead. Now, this seal of God, this angel comes from the east with the seal of God and asks the other four angels to wait because the servants of God needs to be sealed on their forehead. What is this seal of God referring to? One is ownership. Uh, God putting his seal on us and that we belong to him. Those who carry his seal belong to him. Uh, We see kind of the flip side of this later in the story of Revelation in chapter 13 when we're introduced to the famous mark of the beast and how those who bear that mark belong to the beast and belong to the evil one and the ways of the evil one. And so those who would bear this mark, the mark of those who are servants of God, would belong to God and belong to and and live according to his ways. So there's uh, an aspect of ownership in this seal of God. There's also an aspect of God's protection. We see this kind of idea throughout Scripture in different places. I'm going to give you just a few examples. In Ezekiel 9, God is pronouncing judgment against his people because of their idolatry. 
uh, judgment that he will allow to come from the Babylonians. Uh, and there's going to be all sorts of terrible things happen to some of his people because of their idolatry in Ezekiel 9. But there will be a particular group saved, and it will be those who have sealed upon their foreheads something that marks them as being uh, separated from all of the calamity. Uh, it's being exempt from all of the wrath and judgment about to go down. And so they're protected while other people suffer because they bear the seal. In the same way in the Exodus story, uh, in, in, in um, the story of the Passover in particular, uh, we see God uh, allow some people to be free from the suffering and free from the judgment of the angel of death that comes into Egypt to take the life of the firstborn son. Uh, some people are exempt by that because they have uh, blood, uh, the, the blood on their doorpost marking them as being exempt from that judgment. And so there is a seal protecting them. We also see it right here in Revelation a little bit later in chapter 9 when there's some other judgment going on and God tells the angels who are busy doing God's bidding and, 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 and performing God's acts of judgment not to bother those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, the same seal that's being talked about here in chapter 7. So it offers God's protection. Paul talks about the seal a different way. Uh, he talks about a seal. And, and um, this is... Like, we don't have this spelled out exactly this is what this means, but there is a part of me at least, so take this for what you will, there's a part of me at least that wonders if, if, if Paul uh, and, and John are talking about the same kind of thing here. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, that we bear the seal of the Holy Spirit, that, that it is God's down payment, as it were, uh, promising what's going to happen in eternity and making a difference right here, right now, as what John would call in his gospel, an abundant life that we live in today. And so we have the seal of the Holy Spirit with us now, sealing that future promise, but also making a different a difference in our current reality. And so these individuals that are being talked about are given a seal. They're set apart by God. They're protected by God. They are owned by God in the most wonderful sense of that word. Uh, and they are even given uh, maybe perhaps the spirit of God as, as that seal. Not necessarily a, uh, uh, it has to be a literal mark on their heads. Maybe instead the, the mark is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And then, of course, we get to the big number, the number of those who are sealed. Um, probably the most famous number uh, in Revelation, and one of the most famous numbers of the Bible, is 666, uh, just because um, of what it means in pop culture. Uh, you know, that three sixes, even for somebody who's never read the Bible, has no idea about what the Revelation is really about. Uh, I see that number 666. It's at least a bad omen. Uh, I have a story about a trip to Waterburger. I'll tell you when we get to that part in, in the story um, when I was a kid. Uh, so hold on to that one. Uh, but uh, the most that's probably the most famous number in Scripture uh, in, in Revelation. The second, though, is probably the 144,000, if not the number seven, just because it's so ubiquitous throughout the book of Revelation. So 144,000, there have been entire groups of people, and I'm not going to pick on any one by name because there is more than one, but there have been entire groups of people who have decided that People who adhere to their faith uh, or their story of faith or their particular beliefs 
are these people? Like when it says 144,000, these groups would say, this is us. Uh, we are the 144,000 that will be delivered at the end of time. And of course, they usually change their tune when their global membership tops 145,000. Uh, because they don't basically by telling, hey, some of y'all are out of this, right? There's 144,000 of us that are going to be saved. Uh, the rest of you don't really count. So they change their story when they get really big. Uh, but that's one of the ways this is taken out of context. Uh, and there are many other ways as well. Um, one of the things that, that I'm going to focus on today uh, is that, uh, that I've talked about before, is that if we try to get lost in the weeds in the book of Revelation, we're going to miss the point. Uh, and if you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours dissecting, oh, what does exactly this number mean? I think you might be missing the point. Let, let's do it for now, and I'll try to explain as we go along that it's a really big number, okay? And let's be satisfied with that to some degree, and I'll tell you why that should be satisfying in a little bit. There's 144,000. Again, it's a big number. Are these the literal tribes of Israel? Some might ask. Because they are named. Why would they be named if it weren't the literal tribes of Israel? One of the problems of that that we've talked about already in this uh, uh, series is that, well, you've got to ask which of the 12 tribes and why is it these 12 tribes that are mentioned and not some of the others? For instance, if you talk about the 12 tribes as the 12 sons of Jacob, which is basically where the tribes started, uh, then you're leaving some out. Uh, Dan is not among this list. Dan is one of the original 12 tribes of Israel, and it's left out of this list for some reason. Some biblical scholars believe that it was because of what Dan turned into. If you want to know what Dan turned into, go to Judges 18. It's a terrible story. All kinds of idolatry, all kinds of evil, all kinds of things being perpetrated by the people of Dan against themselves and against other people around them. And so maybe they're left out for that reason. But then you also have this weird thing where Joseph is mentioned. Uh, even though he is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, he's hardly ever mentioned as one of the tribes of Israel because it was his two sons that became the tribes, which were Ephraim and Manasseh. And we have Manasseh in this list as well, but we don't have Ephraim. So while one son of Joseph and not the other, you wonder why. Maybe there's some other kind of similar thing with Ephraim as there is with Dan. A lot of people think that they went to the northern kingdom, and perhaps because of the northern kingdom's idolatry, uh, they themselves are counted out as well. Uh, but then in the Old Testament, uh, when you have the 12 tribes listed, the one that's usually left out, if they leave one out, because there are 13 when you divide Joseph into two, and so in order to get 12, they have to take one out. And the one they usually leave out in the Old Testament, I'm talking mainly the book of Numbers, is the tribe of Levi, because Levi is the priestly tribe, the tribe unto God, uh, whereas the others are the earthly tribes. But Levi is in this recounting. Uh, and so you can already see what I'm talking about, about getting lost in the weeds and trying to be super particular about every little thing. Uh, the number 12 is what's important here. Uh, it is the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a number that echoes throughout Scripture. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles to Jesus. And we continue to use those numbers, even though in both cases there were actually 13. There were 13 tribes because Joseph got divided into Manasseh and Ephraim. And there were 13 disciples because Judas, who is taken out of the picture at the end of the Gospels, is replaced by Matthias. And so there are 13 different men that bear the name Apostle. Uh, and so we don't want to get hung up on all the particularities uh, of these people and of the different tribes, but understand the importance of 12. 12 is a symbol of like 
earthly perfection, whereas seven would be heavenly perfection, or seven would be universal perfection. Uh, Twelve is a number of earthly perfection or governmental rule perfection. Uh, And so when God established the 12 tribes, he was establishing the people of God according to a perfect standard, the same way with Jesus inviting 12 apostles. Although they were unlearned men uh, and they were very unworthy in many ways, Jesus chose 12 particular individuals to start his kingdom, to start the church, to start from there for a reason. And so we have 12 tribes, we have 12,000 from each tribe, and when you take the word thousand in Greek, y'all follow me, I know we're getting lost in the weeds here, but y'all follow me through this, okay? When you take the word thousand in Greek, it can also be the word myriad, which just means a lot. Uh, and, and so when it, when uh, last in chapter 5, when Chapter 5 or chapter 6, it said myriads and myriads uh, were worshiping Jesus. It could be thousands and thousands. Uh, That's why it's going to look different ways in different translations, uh, because the committees that translated those books are going to choose one of those words, when in reality they're the same thing in Greek. And so if you take this this word of of earthly perfection, multiply it by a thousand, it just means a bunch. And then you have 12 squared times a thousand. 12 times 12 is 144 times a thousand. You have that thousand. So in other words... Here's where I'm headed, all right? All the minutiae's done. Here's where I'm headed. This is the whole people of God. This is the church, Israel, as a whole. Every single person that, according to God's perfect plan, is supposed to be among the elect and saved and with him forever in eternity, that's what's being talked about right here. In my opinion, my understanding of Scripture. This is what the 144,000 represent. Now you might ask if that's the question, well then why would we even bring up the tribes? Why not just say there's 144,000? Because it is reminiscent of the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the tribes uh, they're, they're numbered, obviously, book of numbers. Uh, they're numbered. We learn how many are in each camp. Uh, we learn how many able-bodied men are ready to go. And, and basically one of the reasons for the book of Numbers is not just so we can have a list but so we'll know how the tribes of Israel are ready to go into battle. It's an important aspect of that reality. This was, these were people who were at war with people around them. And so they needed to be ready to go. And in the same way, we have a battle coming. And the people of God, in this way, are divided into 12 camps, put in this image, like the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole tribe ready to go, except in this case, the tribes themselves aren't battling, but God himself is doing the battling for us. It's a big number, and it's a full number, a solid, round number to represent the totality of the people of God. Now, one more thing before we move to what I want to put before you is the main point. One more thing, one more question that just has to be dealt with is the question that often comes up with 144,000, and that is, is this the rapture? The idea that at some point during the end time story that God will come and call the followers of Jesus home and out of the story. A lot of different ways of reading that. You've probably heard them if you've studied anything about Revelation. Is it going to happen before the tribulation, the great tribulation takes place, in the middle of it or after it? That's one of the big debates about Revelation. Again, I don't want to get lost in that so much um, because if we just take Scripture at its words here, if we just take John at his word, uh, we just try to read this straightforward, at least now we're not at the point where we can read this into the story. Um, if we did read rapture into the story, it would be us placing our beliefs into the story at this point of the story rather than lead, letting it speak for itself. 
because we have this group of people who have the seal of God and their foreheads show up in Revelation 9. We have another 144,000, probably this same group, show up in Revelation 14. Uh, And so to think that this is the end of their story, I think is missing the point. Now, what is important here is that it is what is true and what is clear about these 144,000 individuals is that God protects them. God protects his children. He's not removing them from the story yet, but he is protecting them, even as the story is being told. With all of the, think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, with all of the evil people claiming to be the savior of the world, with all of the war, with all of death, with all of the pestilence, uh, with all of the things going on as this story of unraveled and gets revealed to us about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen according to the perfect plan of God. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of of judgment going on. As all of that is going on and as all of this is taking place, we are reminded that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the evils of the world, even in the midst of physical suffering, even in the midst of where it feels like evil is winning, God is with us, protecting us in the most ultimate sense. One thing that I'm for sure and that I would agree with when it comes to the idea of the rapture, one thing that I would agree with in that, in, in, in that idea, in that theology, and one thing that I think we can to the bank is that God will not allow his children to once again endure his judgment, his wrath, because that judgment, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that judgment, his wrath has already been poured out in its totality on the person of Jesus Christ, where it should never be born again. All of God's judgment was carried out on Jesus through the cross. All of it. And the author of Hebrews is very adamant about the fact that Jesus cannot be crucified again. The sacrifice is a one and done thing. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It doesn't have to be done over and over and over again like the other sacrifices. Jesus is the new high priest, the one who is above all that has come before him. And through his singular act of sacrifice, all of us are cleansed and free from the wrath of God, which our sin has so rightfully deserved. Jesus himself took that upon himself so that we don't have to bear the weight of the wrath of God because we can't. To go back to the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand on this day of the wrath of God? No one on their own, but through the power of Jesus, because he has already borne that wrath, those who are sealed by God's promise are able to stand on that day because God's wrath is not for them. God has taken them, taken that, that wrath away from them and taken it upon himself through his son Jesus just as he sealed the doorposts for the, for the Hebrew children so that they might be protected against his judgment on the first Passover. While we might endure the evils of this world, we are free from experiencing God's wrath and judgment. And if you believe in and follow Jesus as Savior, Remember this reality. God protects his children. You are sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
That is true in the ultimate eternal sense, meaning that when the end comes, you will not have to face the firing squad, the unavoidable, uh, impossible to survive firing squad of God's wrath and judgment, but instead you will be placed solely behind the sacrifice of Jesus and therefore saved from that wrath and judgment and live with him in perfection for eternity. That's true for you in the eternal ultimate sense. But also true for you is today in the, in the, in the, in the, current reality of what you're living through, that no matter what you're enduring, no matter what is going on in the world around us, God has sealed us once and for all. In other words, no matter what happens to your flesh, your soul is always safe in the hands of Jesus Christ. And that will never change. There is nothing, you didn't earn your salvation, so there's nothing you can do to unearn your salvation. Romans 8 tells us, Paul, in that wonderful eloquent passage, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Not height nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love that God showed us through his son Jesus. We are sealed in him no matter what. So children of God, sons and daughters of God, hearing these words this morning, if you're suffering with a physical illness, if you or someone you love who also follows Jesus, has cancer, is in the hospital with COVID, or dealing with some other illness that follows us around constantly. I'm not here today to tell you that Jesus is going to snap his fingers and that sickness is going to go away. If you've ever heard anybody say anything even close to that, it's a false teaching from the pits of hell, and you need to ignore it. It's not biblical in any way whatsoever. God allows us to endure things that are going on in the world. Sometimes he acts and heals miraculously. Sometimes he allows us to endure in ways that we don't understand. But while God might allow you to endure that physical pain, that physical illness, that malady, that handicap that you had for years, while God might allow you to endure that, your soul is never in question. Your eternity is never up for grabs. There is nothing that can take away your hope because you my friends are sealed in Jesus Christ it's not just a physical illness those of you suffering with depression or anxiety those of you dealing with other mental illnesses those of you going through a tough season of life a season of life where there are relationships broken around you where there are people whom you trusted that you found out that maybe you shouldn't have or at least it feels that way in the moment Maybe you've lost someone near and dear to you. Maybe you've wronged someone and you're feeling a heavy dose of guilt about what you've done. Those things happen. And again, I'm not going to tell you that the Holy Spirit is going to wave some magic wand and immediately that pain is going to go away. It's part of living in a fallen world. But what I can tell you is that even when you're in a worldly sense, quote unquote, your heart is broken, your soul is secure in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that can change that. Because you are sealed in him. God protects his children. And you are his child. And so God protects you. No matter what happens to your flesh, your spirit, your soul is protected by the blood of Jesus. I have several commentaries in my library over the book of Revelation that I've gathered over the last several years and been trying to read through them this week. And Every now and then a line will jump out. And there's one in particular, um, it's called Preach the Text Commentary. And it's it, it's not as 
or as academic as a lot of the other ones that I have in my library, like a lot of commentaries are. And this is, is very helpful uh, and, and, and speaks in a very practical sense. And so this guy's very quotable. His name's James N. Hamilton. And he says that as he's thinking about this idea of being sealed in God, something that he, he says to himself, something that he, he, he prays over himself, uh, oftentimes daily, is, is what's on the screen there. God is reminding him, reminding Satan, reminding Jesus, God has sealed me, Satan, so in the name of Jesus, I will not yield to your temptation. Like this is a present reality about who you are. It's a future reality about what your eternity is going to be like, but it's a present reality about who you are. You are sealed once and for all in a way that can't be undone as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. And as such, there is no weapon in this world that can take away that hope you have in Jesus. There's no circumstance that can break the relationship you have with Jesus. He has sealed you once and for all. So perhaps one of the things we need to remind ourselves of often, especially when we don't want to feel this way, when we want to be mad at God or mad at our circumstances or just frustrated at everybody around us, perhaps one thing we need to remind ourselves of is we are sealed in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to give in to the temptation of the evil one. I don't have to give in to the temptation of hopelessness. I don't have to give in to my own sinful self because God himself has sealed me for eternity. No matter what. You, child of God, are sealed for eternity and right now, today. As we enter into the end of our time together today, I want you to reflect over this reality who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That through the sacrifice on the cross and through the power of the empty grave, that he has sealed you once and for all in a way that will stretch forward into infinity, that you will always be in the hands of Jesus Christ. And that you are right now. No matter what's going on around you in your world, no matter how big the temptation to hopelessness feels. There's nothing on this planet, above the earth or under the earth, there is nothing that can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. We didn't earn it. We can't lose it. God has sealed you. Would you in the midst of whatever pain you're going through. Take time to rejoice and rest in the reality that, yes, man, this situation stinks. It is painful. I don't want to endure it. But would you rest and would you rejoice in the Lord that even though that is the case, even though the world is hard, even though hopelessness looms around every corner, that our hope cannot be quenched because our hope is Jesus Christ who has sealed us for eternity. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, I would love to talk to you about that this morning.
You can come down here and talk with me while we're singing together here in just a moment. I'll be down here. We can pray about anything. You can find me after the service. I'll hang around and we can talk then. If you're joining us online and you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, man, just send us a Facebook message. We'll have somebody reach out to you. Uh, give us an email or a phone number or something. We want to talk to you about who Jesus is and who he can be to you. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, is your circumstance causing you to doubt that he's got you right now? Or are, are you worried about the things going on around you and you're, you're, you're worried about your future, you're worried about your present, you're worried about your relationships? Today I'm asking you again to stop in the middle of whatever pain that is and rest and rejoice in the reality that you cannot send your way out of God's love, that circumstance cannot steal the hope that we have in Jesus, that it is forever and it is for now and nothing can change that. Praise God for that reality during this time. Ask him to remind you of that as we, as we enter into invitation. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Andrew's going to lead us in a couple more songs. And as he does, what again, you just take this time to spend with God and, and move in whatever way he's telling you to. Father, again, we thank you for today, for your son Jesus, for your Holy Spirit's presence here among us and within us. God, I pray that you would continue to work on us. God, that you would continue to, to convict us of change where it needs to happen. Encourage us about what you're doing in your life. God, move according to your perfect will. And God, allow us to respond in whatever way that you are leading. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.